Hey, thank you for listening to the Real Perspectives podcast. If you like this episode, please follow us and tell one of your colleagues about the interview you're about to hear or have heard in the past. We hope you enjoy our conversations and that you'll listen to others in our library. If you have any thoughts, ideas, or suggestions, please reach out. We'll do our best to incorporate them. Thanks again. This is your host, Vladimir Bosanets. I'm the co-founder and publisher of The Registry, and today I have the privilege of welcoming Rochelle Mills to our podcast. Rochelle is the president and CEO of Innovative Housing Opportunities, a high-quality, affordable housing provider and developer that has been growing across Southern California with an approach to make their communities indistinguishable for market-rate properties, where residents can thrive, develop healthy habits, and achieve success and stability. IHO was formed in 1976 to help business and government address the lack of low to moderate income housing in the city of Irvine. High quality affordable housing can be a launch pad for residents to create and rebuild their lives. And our conversation with Rochelle takes us through the differentiating factors that help IHO create housing independence and also give back to their communities. Welcome to the podcast, Rochelle. Uh, Rochelle, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm fine. Thank you for asking. Where do we find you today? Where are you? Well, I am actually in a co-working space in Los Angeles called The Gathering Spot in uh, one of the new burgeoning up-and-coming neighborhoods in Los Angeles, in South Los Angeles. Excellent. And is this a, is this a new spot for you? or It um, is a new or? spot. I've noticed a lot of our colleagues are... Uh, creating these jewels in the community so that all of the solopreneurs and entrepreneurs have a space of their own rather than going to the larger scale we work. So it's really nice to be here and see the diversity of this space. Yeah, wonderful. And it sort of helps you guys sort of kind of be in uh, be in the community a little bit more as well, right? And Absolutely. And sort of see how things are evolving. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, Rochelle, uh, you know, I ask all of our guests to tell us a little bit about, you know, themselves. So uh, I'd love to, you know, give you the opportunity also to introduce yourself and kind of tell us a little bit about, you know, you and your background and sort of how the, you know, the winding road of your career sure. got you to where you are today. It's, it's interesting when I think back on it, because I never would have thought that I would be in affordable housing. My background, I started in architecture. My husband and I met in um, architecture school in St. Louis, came back to Los Angeles where I had been born and raised, and eventually opened up our own design studio, doing mostly high-end single-family hillside homes for artists and collectors. Um, I'm the kind of person that really needs to be inspired. So we also started a company called Architours that did art and architecture tours around the country and Canada. I was starting to do some research for South America and Africa and cities like that that were non-traditional places for art and architecture when the economy turned. And I have a twin sister who is in architecture and design and she had a contract to do housing inspections for multifamily affordable housing. And I said, sure, you know, sure, I will stand in and do some of these things. One of the projects that I was working on or inspecting 
was for a developer called Irvine Housing Opportunities, which eventually became Innovative Housing Opportunities. And okay. they, and I came in expecting to be here for two years, and here it is uh, 17 years later, and I'm still <laughs> right. here. Excellent, excellent. So tell us about Innovative Housing. Um, you know, what does your organization do? You know, how has it evolved since the days that you sort of first got, got to know it? Um, right. You know, where is it active geographically and, you know, what is its mission? So Innovative Housing Opportunities is a nonprofit affordable housing developer. Our mission is permanent rental housing. And when the organization was formed, it was actually formed out of a lawsuit that was forcing the city of Irvine to include low to moderate income housing in their zoning plan. That zoning um, fight actually had ripple effects across the state and was tied into what is now um, uh, known as the housing element. All cities and jurisdictions in the state of California have to create a housing element that um, designates or puts in place their process to ensure that there will be housing for low to moderate income folks. When I came to IHO in 2016, or 2006, I should say, um, they had one property that they had developed in uh, 1981 as the first 100% very low income senior housing. Uh, over the years, we morphed. Uh, when I came on as staff, we gave money away for a little while. We provided low interest loans to nonprofits that were about our size but didn't have the, the capital that IHO has. Yeah. Uh, and over time, we started to build our portfolio because we were concerned that um, the while the housing affordable housing is much better than it was the stereotype that people think of it. We were looking at it in terms of the legacy. What is the impact after a resident moves in? And so we have gone on a journey over the last few years and recently started um, modifying our portfolio accordingly so that uh, we are doing properties not just in Irvine or Orange County. Our footprint is Southern California, but we believe very strongly that the work that we do, integrating housing and services, um, is something that can be uh, replicated across the state. So we have now started looking at projects and partnerships in the Bay Area and beyond. Oh, wonderful. Now, you, in your description, you said, you know, permanent affordable housing. Mm -hmm. um, is is that a, uh, you know, qualifier for the particular type of housing that you do compared to some other affordable housing Absolutely. developers? Uh, right now, what people are mostly hearing is permanent supportive housing or housing for the homeless. Those are for the uh, residents in our communities that have the highest needs, the highest need for social services, the deepest affordability needs. And a lot of times you may have uh, solutions that are transitional housing or temporary housing, emergency housing. Permanent rental housing is just that. It is where, uh, you know, people may come from a transitional housing um, relationship and then need to move into permanent housing. That's what we concentrate on. 
Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Um, so, you know, here we are kind of on the back end of, you know, a, a three-year ordeal that has impacted, you know, us as a society, you know, globally, you know, certainly regionally as well. Um, what is the state of affordable housing today? You know, as we, here we are talking, you know, Q1 of 2023, how would you characterize sort of what's happening in the industry in, um, in which you work? Well, we're at a crisis right now. Uh, some of our colleagues believe we can build our way out of it. The resources just aren't there. Uh, the housing stock is not there. Uh, of course, we need to build more housing, but we need to build more housing at all income levels. The challenge that we see at IHO is with the concentration on homelessness and temporary housing, what we're eliminating or inadvertently creating, we always talk about the unintended consequences, is that we are creating really beautifully designed silos of poverty. And what we're noticing is that while we are taking care of the least of these, uh, and the market will take care of the highest income folks, the luxury and market rate housing, which incidentally has high vacancy rates, where affordable housing typically has somewhere between 1% and 5% vacancy. So there is, there is a great need for housing. What we are doing, though, is we are missing out on all of those people in the middle. You'll hear the term missing middle. Right. middle income, workforce housing, move up housing. One of the things that IHO is very passionate about is mixed income because we always need to take care of those who have the least resources. But we also need to make sure that we are not eliminating or designing out of the process those who have done what we've asked them to do. They've gone to college, they've started businesses, they don't have the resources to move into market rate or luxury housing, but they don't qualify for low income housing or very low income housing. And so what we're finding is that those who have the greatest mobility are being displaced from our communities. And that to me is tragic because yeah. what we're finding, uh, what, what most people will see is that people imitate the greatest behavior. When you see that all of your friends are heading overseas, you start to wonder, what is it you're doing? And you start to emulate that behavior. But if we're putting all of the same people who have the same struggles together, they're not able to see a pathway out other than the lecture that comes with the services and programs that we provide. So we're very much in favor of a mixed income, having low income, having those on the higher end of the low income, but those who simply need a chance to reset and will likely move out and into the marketplace. That's yeah. what we're that's what we're in favor of. Yeah, interesting. And is this the type of product you guys are focused on as well? That is. All of yeah. our projects moving forward have that component. And in fact, we've also included an economic development component. We say it this way. We develop three things. We develop high-quality real estate. We develop resilient residences, uh, residents, I should say. And we develop economic empowerment opportunities. So what that means is if we are on a commercial corridor, we are looking for 
meaningful, tangible businesses where our residents and our community members may be able to get soft skills, where they can get services, where they can really start to build that sense of community that attracts reinvestment in those communities. And people talk about gentrification and displacement, but if you do it well, you are attracting uh, um, people into the community and investment into the community so that these communities can thrive. And more than that, that the residents that we are serving become part of those decision makers and those voices and peer mentors that help really catalyze and grow a community. What's interesting about this is that I'm I'm curious kind of how the municipalities and the counties are, you know, looking at this. Are they are are, are they themselves ready uh, for kind of your approach to, you know, affordable housing versus the sort of quote unquote, you know, typical kind of way which is, you know, um you know, this is only for low-income families or this is, you know, uh for, you know, homeless, you know, that kind of stuff. Um how you know, throughout your work, have you found you know them to you know be either responsive or non-responsive to to this new? Well, we. I don't gotten, know if it's a new idea, but it's but it's your idea at least, right? It, it's it's an idea that I think a lot of our colleagues are embracing. And what's really interesting is we've had really frank conversations off the record with some of our uh, municipalities, and they will tell us we fully understand the need for housing. But the reality is affordable housing takes money from the general fund where um, market rate housing or commercial development puts tax revenue back into the general fund. And so if they have to choose, they're really struggling with a 100% extremely low income uh, project or a 100% affordable project because it's exempt from taxes. So the way we have... Uh, responded to that is that we need to create projects that do offer these communities, these cities opportunities to gain some tax revenue. One of the challenges that happened during the pandemic was that while, uh, you know, the commercial corridors shut down, people weren't going to businesses. They weren't taking advantage of or supporting a lot of the economic engines that were driving taxes. These taxes are what support, the tax increment is what supports affordable housing. So we recognize that they really are dealing with a conundrum. They've got incredible housing needs but they've got an incredible lack of resources. So we're looking at it not just as a mixed income, but mixed use. If it's on a commercial corridor, we want to make sure that we are designing it so that it can attract the kind of businesses that can support tax generation because we right. can't do it. Uh, we, we can't go to a vanishing pot of money at the state level or at local uh, level if there are no sources of revenue to replenish these these funds. So I know that the cities are excited about the idea that we will partner with them to build um, tax generating um, uh, businesses attached to the housing. I believe that that's the way we're going to have to move as an industry. 
Yeah, yeah. Do you find that this approach uh, also enables, you know, funding uh, to be, you know, more abundant? Um, I know that's obviously always mm-hmm, a challenge, mm-hmm. especially for affordable housing. It's a different, it's a different challenge than for other kind of multifamily developments. Do Do you find that to help you? Um, it's in this approach. There have been a lot of, I always say, highly stylized and. Uh, highly promoted press releases from banks, from corporations wanting to create uh, funds that are supposed to be investing in communities, investing in housing uh, um, production, investing in uh, organizations that are BIPOC-led that are working in this space. I say it this way. Because I, I believe when they printed the press release, they might have meant it. But I have yeah. seen precious little money actually coming through. And I think if we can release those dollars, if we can access those dollars, I think it's a win-win. One of the things that I think we do not take into consideration is the relationship between housing development and economic development. Once a person moves into a a new home, the first thing they want are jobs because they want to be able to sustain themselves. We're hearing that since the pandemic, companies are leaving California. Why are they leaving California? They're leaving because there are no homes that are affordable. We should be working on this together. When a corporation decides to move into a city, The first relationship should be on housing production. And we're finding that we're, again, speaking in silos. Housing developers are speaking to housing developers. Economic development departments are speaking to economic development departments. We could be leveraging those those, uh, limited resources much better by going out to these what we call anchor businesses and saying, I, you know, I know you are looking at coming into California. Why don't we connect you with a list of developers to help you find or create the kind of housing that you need to be able to have that reliable workforce? So I, I really think that we um, collaboration is going to turn the tide here. We've done it so long a specific way as silos, and it just has not served us well. Right, right. Um, speaking of partnerships, um, when when we see, you know, multifamily developments, especially big kind of, you know, master plan kind of stuff, there's usually an affordable component attached mm-hmm. to it or somehow detached or whatever. Um, how have you guys, you know, worked in, in that world? Um, and maybe another question is, are, are you guys a nonprofit or for-profit? And mm-hmm. sort of how, how does that help you um, in, in this, you know, in this, in this you know, space? And do you think that having those partnerships like that with sort of for-profit developers on, you know, you know bigger communities is, is, has been working? I, you know, I, I believe a hundred percent in partnerships. Um, I wish we had known when I first joined IHO, how important it is to build your um, capacity by working in partnership. 
Had we known that, I don't think it would have taken us as long to grow. And what I mean by that is uh, most of affordable housing is um, produced through the use of tax credits. Tax credits require, um, in most cases, a nonprofit partner, or I should say it makes it much more financially feasible. So working with a for-profit developer is really important. Uh, and we've had conversations with developers who have asked us, well, why wouldn't we partner with you? What is the advantage that we get by partnering with you? Well, the advantage, aside from the fact that typically nonprofits like IHO are community-based, and have a uh, well thought out mission, we can bring the community to the developers. Developers get a uh, black eye and sometimes we're lumped in with uh, um, renegade or the perception of renegade developers, but we can bring that level of community engagement that a for-profit developer may not be interested in or may not see the value of. I'll never forget, we had a a developer that we were going to do a project with and they spoke to us very frankly and they said, I just don't really understand the value of working with a nonprofit. Why should we share the profits? Why should we have you involved in the decision-making? It will simply slow us down. And we talked about the benefit that we can bring. We know the communities, we have the relationships, we can do all of these things. Uh, but it was the financial um, benefit. And that developer came back to us uh, a year later and said, you know, we've been thinking about this. We'd like to work with you on a project. And I will say without arrogance that we competed for a project that I don't believe that they would have gotten without us attached to it. Because of our roots in the community, we know what the community was looking for, and we were able to create a project that was that much more relevant and um, something that the community could rally behind. That's the benefit of the partnership. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of partnerships. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned um, uh, some of the government funding could, you know, create limitations on certain projects because then mm. it imposes certain requirements in terms of, you know, who who can rent um, and who can be sort of eligible, right? right. Are there better ways to, to accomplish this that, that you, know, you have done? It, this is, you know, this is what keeps me up at night. If you were to ask me what keeps you up at night, it really is the limitations that come with public finance. Um, Anyone who's heard me speak has heard me say the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And I believe that decisions are made in a boardroom without looking at how it actually hits the ground, hits the sidewalk. What I mean by that is you have layers of red tape and additions to projects. If the goal is to house people then some of the add-ons that are um, uh, tied to developing the project really make you scratch your head. In the city of Irvine, you have to put in, for example, a junior Olympic swimming pool. We are competing with market rate developers. So some of the amenities that we're putting in would rival a market rate development when you're using public funds. 
public funds will also push the income levels farther down. And so it makes it extremely difficult to cash flow a project. If you are going to put people into a property that have not lived indoors in the last 10 years, you cannot house them without robust case management and social services. But those social services dollars are not guaranteed in the housing dollars. There are other, um, you've got CEQA requirements, you've got uh, project labor agreements, you have uh, community engagement requirements, all kinds of things that add time and time adds cost. But what is even more frustrating is that a lot of times using public funds, you don't have enough in each source. So you may be layering up to nine different funding sources on a single project. And each one has a different deadline. Each one has a different set of requirements. Coordinating that alone takes an act of Congress. And so we are making it incredibly difficult to build uh, housing quickly, to make it as meaningful uh, to the communities that have that great need. Um, People will ask us when they, you know, they have, the city of LA has approved more than a billion dollars in bonds to help house the homeless. It has taken years to bring those projects to fruition because of the red tape and compliance. And then what people see is we've got the housing, but we still have homeless on our front door. And so I'm really worried about the fatigue of the taxpayer, of the voter, who's going to say, well, now why, you know, we voted on this, but this hasn't, you know, nothing has changed. And they don't understand the time and the cost of the red tape. So I don't think with public dollars that we've done a good job of educating and managing expectations. But by the time we have competed, some of our funding sources are oversubscribed seven to one. Right, right. So that means six very good shovel-ready projects are not going to see the light of day. So yeah, yeah, we're going to have to add additional uh, revenue to the bucket of money that we're going after. And I find that by looking at private dollars, we may be able to also eliminate some of the add-ons that add time and unnecessary cost to the development. Yeah, yeah. Sounds like time is not your friend in many cases, right? No, it, um, it really is not. It can yeah. take uh, four years for a project to come to life, but it can take up to 12. And uh, uh, we just broke ground on a project with a colleague, and it has been 20 years in the making. Yeah, yeah. That's that's not a surprise. Those are <laughs> stories from California development that we've all heard, right? Exactly. Um, one thing that you know you mentioned about you know requirements for certain amenities uh, that made me think about you know people's needs and what they want. You know, change generationally, obviously, mm-hmm. and and with time. Um, I'm curious. You know, what what are some of the services? What are some of the you know, amenities that you think are more useful for projects like yours versus, you know, them being defined by, you know, either, you know, a, you know, 
you know, code or you know, municipality or yeah. you know, whatever. Um, what what resonates with the with with the residents in in these types of projects? Well, what's interesting is um, when people, as I, I had mentioned, when people move into affordable housing or housing in general, the thing they need to make sure that it is stable is a good job. When you're dealing with affordable housing, a lot of people don't have strong computer skills. They may not even have uh, internet capacity. And so you hear a lot about digital divide, but I find that that is critical. Now, it's not inexpensive to take care of it, but we're looking at in our properties, how do we integrate Wi-Fi in all of our public areas, indoors and outdoors, so that we become that kind of resource that we can allow our residents to learn how to use the internet and to uh, grow their skills because they cannot get high wage jobs if they don't know how to use the tool that is right now the economic engine and that is the internet. So we're looking at partnerships raising private funds so we can have uh, people sitting outside working on um, their, you know, a job application or doing their homework. I think everybody saw the image during the, um, during COVID and it's burned into my memory, two young girls sitting at the curb of a Taco Bell because that was the only way that they could get internet service to do their homework. And that, to me, that is much more valuable than a junior Olympic swimming pool or exercise uh, equipment rooms, gyms in uh, outfitted in an affordable housing development, is yeah. making sure that people can use the tools that, that give them that 21st century. It's not even an edge anymore. It is a mandate for people to have those skills. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think there were some examples of, um, you know, during COVID, you know, especially lower income communities where kids did not have internet and would go to like a McDonald's or something like exactly. that, sit in the parking lot, or and and some you know organizations responded by you know providing those little Wi-Fi you know things where they can just like you know you know put them in their houses and that kind of stuff to mm-hmm. enable online learning. Which um, you know when you think about it, it, it really impacted I think some of the lower wage communities more so than than uh, you know people like me who have the means to you know have gig internet and that kind of stuff, right? Absolutely. Um, we yeah, believe it. I hope. Our our motto is it starts with housing. And what is the it we're talking about? We're talking about resilience. We're talking about revitalization of communities, uh, stronger families, all start with housing. And so what can we, what is the value add we bring to the housing? You know, it may not be washers and dryers inside of everyone's unit. Sure. But we could put, because all affordable housing has a laundry room, but if we can also include in that laundry room Wi-Fi, then you've got a nice warm place for somebody to do their laundry and, you know, do some homework, do some uh, work in the office or something like that. We're looking at housing as that launch pad for people's lives. Can they take the housing that we give them? Not everybody will be able to, but th- can we use that as a launch pad so that people then better themselves and move on 
so the next family can move in. And that I think is where I believe housing right now, affordable housing has dropped the ball. Yeah. Once we get people housed, you move to the next building and you get people housed and you move to the next building. But what about getting them housed, getting them equipped to move on and then allowing the next family who's living in a car or who has uh, hit a bad patch to move in? And that's what we're looking at at Idaho. What is the legacy? Yeah. What's the ripple effect of the work that we're doing? I don't feel good about creating a lifetime of renters if we know that wealth, generational wealth is built in home ownership. So while I do believe in permanent rental housing, I would like to believe that those who are capable of it can be equipped to move on so that someone else can move in. So Rochelle, as you look at kind of, you know, the next, you know, five years or so, then this might be, you know, a trite question, but, you know, what are some of the drivers of the industry? You know, what 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 is the future of affordable housing? What do you think is going to make an impact in kind of how either, you know, projects are being built, you know, delivered? Um, what, what are some things that excite you? You know, there are a few things that really excite me. Number one are the collaborations. And I've seen things in the East Coast and Midwest that we haven't done yet in California that I think are really exciting. Housing co-located with health, health facilities. There are even housing developments that are uh, connected to health facilities and grocery stores so that you have this continuum of healthy living, healthy food, and incentive programs so that it monitors what you're buying at the grocery store and those who are spending money uh, on uh, healthy whole foods yeah. get some kind of benefit. I love things like that. We're seeing um, collaborations between um, affordable housing and boutique hotels, uh, mixed income housing and boutique hotels. We've all seen in communities and uh, mostly in high-end communities where you've got one tower that's affordable, I mean, um, uh, a hotel, and the other tower is market rate housing. But now to see those um, partnerships and recognize that there is a partnership that goes deeper where you are prioritizing the jobs for that hotel by the low-income residents. So we're building in that kind of economic empowerment into it. I've seen housing co-located with uh, arts. In the top five requests for uh, a survey of um, what do people in, want in their communities, they talk about housing, jobs, quality education, healthcare. They also talk about art and culture. And to see that cultural institutions are finding a way to be involved in affordable housing. This is the thing that I think we are missing when I say we're talking about silos. We can build beautiful affordable housing, but people live outside of the four walls that we've created. So how right. do we work to make these the communities that everybody wants to be engaged in? That I think is what's really exciting is these incredible partnerships, 
these opportunities to to do more than just house somebody or to put housing on one block and jobs somewhere else. We're looking at the connection of housing and transit. I'm just excited about all of the opportunities that we have to collaborate. I just think that if we can take some of the red tape that really inhibits that kind of creativity, we will have communities that everyone can get excited about. There won't be a hesitation to have low-income people in a higher resourced or higher income community because everybody sees it as a win-win. Do you think this will be achievable? Do you do you think that um, you know financially that's going to be possible to to accomplish? I actually do. Uh, the quickest way to get people on board is to show them the financial return. And I don't think as housers, we've done a good job of doing that. We haven't shown how getting people housed reduces the kinds of emergency services and chronic health care costs that taxpayers are footing the bill on. And so I think if we do a much better job of telling our story, telling our successes, explaining how people have moved in and moved up, uh, and how this affordable housing isn't just for those people. It's for those seniors and elders who have um, who are house rich but cash poor. But yeah. they can't afford to move into an affordable place because by selling their home, they are now over income. What if we had those mixed income models in all neighborhoods so they can sell the home? Now someone else can move into that home. So I think we I think we're doing a disservice to not really explain the continuum, the ecosystem that is created when you put high quality affordable housing. And by affordable, I mean affordable to all of those who are priced out right now. Um, and not just thinking about well, it's only going to these people or, you know, all of the developers are going to this level of folks. Yeah. But we can yeah. really create the kinds of communities that all of us want to be a member of. Yeah, yeah. Um, Rochelle, as we uh, close our conversation here, I would, uh, you know, love to get a perspective from you uh, in terms of like some, you know, personal narrative of like, maybe a comment, maybe some, you know, lessons learned, or maybe even advice to your younger self and, you know, uh, about this industry and, and perhaps, you know, maybe some feedback for folks who want to get into affordable housing, you know, what, 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 what would you tell them? You know, what would be some useful advice that they could, that, um, you know, they could apply? I'm glad you asked that question because I think you have to have a giant spoonful of optimism, of creativity, of impatience. If I could have told my younger self when I got into this field, the amount of time that it takes to move the rock up the hill, I probably would have walked away. Uh, to be quite honest with you, I probably would have walked away. I think the message is, you know, to hang in there, but to not be so willing to accept 
this is how it's always done. I think it's easy for us to say, you know, how can we solve this? We need more money. But there is a finite amount of money. What we need more is creativity in how we leverage the limited resources that we have now. I would have told the younger Rochelle, start building relationships with the workforce community, with anchor businesses, with private investors, um, and find ways to help those limited private well-meaning uh, public well-meaning dollars do what they were set out to do. I would not have I, I would not have been content to wait till 10 years to break ground on a project. I do believe that we need to be more creative and a little more impatient. But more than that, we need to be solutions oriented. I hear far too many of our colleagues, and we've been in that position too, where we talk about all the problems. I think we all know there's problems. What are the solutions? That's what I would have been more engaged in, is getting the right people around the table at the same time, rather than talking to housers, then talking to politicians, then talking to economic development folks, and then there's no connection. I would have done much more to tell uh, early Rochelle, get all of those people in the same room at the same time, and that we can have much greater success with much fewer resources. Uh, Rochelle, this has been great, uh, very inspirational, and thank you for um, all that wonderful feedback. Um, I wish you well, and I look forward to you know hearing from you guys from time to time about what's what's happening, and thank you for taking the time to speak with us. Well, thank you for offering us an opportunity to share our vision. That was another episode of the Real Perspectives podcast, and we thank you for taking the time to listen to it. Conversations like these help us comprehend our evolving industry better and hopefully provide a perspective that helps you understand the dynamics of commercial real estate. If you like this episode, please subscribe to our show and tell your colleagues about it. That is the best way to spread the news and help us remain relevant across the industry. Cheers. Cheers.